So as many of you know, uh, my family and I served as missionaries uh, in Lisbon, Portugal. And when you're serving in a foreign country, we have to learn a new language. Language learning can be exciting, it can be fun, it could also be extremely frustrating, and it could be extremely difficult. And uh, there'd be times where I think I nailed it, and I got it right uh, in terms of the language, and then all of a sudden times where I just fall flat on my face. And one word that would get me every time is this word right here. It's a Portuguese word, and it's pronounced pusha, pusha. And this word would be put on the doors of a business or a restaurant or a store. So you'd see it and it'd say, Pusha. And I'd walk up to that store and I'd say, ah, Pusha. And you know what I'd do? I would Pusha. But the problem is that means pull. (laughs) I almost broke my nose a few times because of this word. Did you ever think you had something dead on right only to find out that you weren't even close? I think if we went around and I asked you, what is a disciple of Jesus Christ? We would get all sorts of answers, and some would be right on, some would be close, some would be way off. But what I love is in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Mark gives us a crystal clear picture of what a disciple of Jesus Christ is. If you start reading the Bible in the New Testament, you're going to see this word disciple a lot. We use the word Christian a lot, but the New Testament word is disciple, this follower of Jesus. And and Jesus used this word to identify those who are close to him. But what really is a disciple? And that's what we want to look at this morning. We are in a series called Amaze as we're going through the book of Mark. And I want to invite you now to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Verses 7 to 35, Chris uh, did a great job kicking off this series the last two weeks. I appreciate that. One of the things I did for the first time is use the Church Center app to follow along. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's amazing. Uh, Thank you to Ryan for putting that all together. Everything's laid out right there. If you want to do that, you can. Uh, But Mark chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 3, we're going to be focusing on verses 7 to 35. And in this passage, we're going to see three pictures. We're going to see a picture of our current world. Then we're going to see a picture of a true disciple. Then we're going to see a picture of a false disciple. Mark does this so many times throughout his book. We're going to see this a lot. He kind of sandwiches truth in between two falsehoods. He gives us one picture, then truth, and then another picture. And he puts these two things on the outside to contrast the truth in the middle. And so we're going to see that right here, and we're going to see it a lot as we go through this book. So what I want to do is look at these three pictures, and then at the end, I'm going to pull it all together in a gospel lens. And so let's take a look. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 7. The first picture I want to look at is a picture of our current world, verses 7 to 12. It reads this. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, around the Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing towards him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. 
We see in this picture that large crowds are coming. If you look at verses 7 and 8, three times he mentions large crowd followed from Galilee, large crowd from all those other areas, large crowd came because they heard. There's this large crowd that's coming to Jesus, and they were obsessed with one thing, and that is to get their felt need met. They wanted to be alleviated from their afflictions. They wanted to be, have comfort That was their primary motive. They heard that this guy, Jesus, heals and delivers, and they wanted to get in on that and be comforted with their things that they were carrying that were painful. The demons were hushed. They would shout out who he was, and he silenced them because it was giving the the right information at the wrong time. They were declaring he was son of God, which he was. They were saying, this is a Messiah, And one of the things that people knew is the Messiah would heal, the Messiah would deliver, but Jesus knew that that was all their motive was, and so he wanted them to be hushed. He knew that they would use this truth right now to get their own self-interest. Now, there's nothing wrong with bringing your felt needs to God. God wants us to do that, but we have to realize that there's more to being a disciple than Jesus just meeting our needs. Notice the crowds and the demons. The original language says falling in on him. And we see this original word in the Greek used two times. Once in verse 10, where it says, Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing towards him. That was that word saying falling in on him. And then look at verse 11. Whenever an unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him. There's that word again. Mark uses the same Greek word to describe what the crowds are doing and what the demons are doing. The idea here is Mark is tying these two together. That does not speak well of the crowds. We find their motivation in verse 8. It says that they came because they heard about everything he was doing. That was their primary motivation. What's in it for me? I want this because I want this. They had no other motive other than that. This is a key picture of our current world. Our current world makes Jesus into anything they want him to be. Jesus is on the potter's wheel of the current world to be molded in whoever they feel he should be and however they want him to be. Often it's not outright lies. There's just enough truth there to make it palatable. But the reality is, it's not a correct picture. They mold Jesus in. I, I want to do what I want to do, so I'm going to make a Jesus where there's no requirements. I want him to be all comforting because I don't want to experience pain. So I'm going to mold a Jesus that says I don't have to have pain in this life. I'm going to accommodate Jesus so there's no cost to me whatsoever. See, that's the spirit of the age pressing in on Jesus to get what we want. So if everyone in this picture is after Jesus for an ulterior motive, who is truly for Jesus? Who is truly for his mission? Many seek out Jesus for the wrong reasons, which leads us to a key question. What does it mean to be for Jesus? What does it mean to be for Jesus? Now Mark bends this text around and shows us two more pictures. 
The next picture he shows us is a picture of a true disciple. Look at verses 13 to 19. Picture number two. Jesus went up to the mountainside and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed the twelve, who he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that which is sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. There's a striking picture here that the Jewish audience who were listening would not have missed. If you notice in verse 13, it says that he went up to the mountainside. It's a reference to the fact of almost a word picture in the Old Testament where Moses went up to the mountainside, received the law from God, and brought it down to the 12 tribes of Israel that were established. God was reestablishing then how he was going to relate to his people at that time through the law. And now Jesus goes to the mountainside. He appoints the 12 apostles to establish the new Israel the new community, to establish the church, this thing called Christianity, this movement of disciples of Jesus Christ that would go throughout the entire world. Picture this, if you're Jesus, you have three and a half years, only three and a half years, to establish this thing called Christianity that is to last throughout the entire world at least 2,000 years, if not more, until you come back again. If you had three and a half years to establish this thing called Christianity, this movement of disciple makers, how would you do it? I would probably try to get as many big crowds as I can to get the word out. Jesus started with 12 people. And they changed the world upside down. And what does he call them to? Look at verse 14. He appointed 12 who he also named apostles to be with him. That was their first calling. To be with him. And then to be sent out from him. So the key question was, what does it mean to be for Jesus? The key answer is to be with him and sent out from him. That's a disciple. To be with him and sent out from him. Both of those need to be present in your life. With him and sent out from him. Both are needed, but the order is so significant. We are called to be with him first, to remain basking in the presence of Jesus, to be saturated by the presence of Jesus, to place our hearts, as Ryan said earlier in the verse from John 15, abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus, staying in Jesus That's the very first call that has to happen. And that's essential before we go out and do anything for Jesus. There are many that do things out there in terms of action. But you will never have the power and impact in your action if you're not spending time first with him. The first call of a disciple is to be with him. To be in his presence 
And Jesus moves this group from followers to companions to participants in his kingdom agenda moving forward. He said to them, let's go on to neighboring villages. Let's. He brings them with that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He invites those who are with him to make disciples everywhere and fulfill his mission. A true disciple of Jesus is someone who is with him and goes out on Jesus' kingdom-expanding, love-abounding, disciple-making mission. Someone who is with Jesus obeys Jesus. And then Mark wants to drive home this point by completing that sandwich and giving us that contrast of one final picture, the picture of a false disciple. Look at verses 20 to 30. I'm going to first focus on the first two verses, 20 to 22. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again, and they were, not able to, uh, they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him, because they said, he is out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons." In this picture, we see two groups of people with the same goal. The goal is to oppose Jesus. They create this picture of a false disciple. And oddly enough, many times we look to these same groups of people to help us follow Jesus, but they could be opposing Jesus as well. The two groups that we see are the families and the, his family and the scribes. His family and the scribes. I want to look at the family first. Look at what they did in verse 21. It says they went out when they heard this. They set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. They try to get rid of him. Why would they do that? Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever had a time where you're following Jesus and you start talking about it with family members and they look at you like you are out of your mind? Jesus' family was not with him on this mission at this moment. They disregarded his authority. They disregarded who he truly was. And they're classified in Mark's picture here as false disciples. And there's some key principles for us in this. First of all, if your family are disciples, remember, genetics does not make you a disciple of Jesus. If, you, if your families are following Jesus and they're Christians... It doesn't mean you are automatically that. I remember talking to people sometimes. I'll say, tell me your story. How did you get to the spot where you began to follow Jesus? They say, well, I was born in a Christian home. But here's the deal. You're never, ever born a disciple of Jesus. It's a decision you make to follow on your own, to be with him and be sent out from him. Another principle we need to learn is if your family are not disciples of Jesus, then if you want to follow Jesus, you must oppose their false disciple thinking. You must walk in a different direction. It doesn't mean you leave your family. It doesn't mean you blow off your family. It means you think differently. It means you live differently. In fact, Jesus put it like this. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Many people have brought that scripture to my attention and said, what does that mean? Does that really mean 
I have to hate my family and hate myself. And what Jesus is saying here is a really key important, that your love and devotion for Jesus Christ should so far outseed your love and devotion to family and yourself that it looks like hate in comparison to the love that you have for Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is so first place in your life and your family is second place that your love and your devotion to Christ is so evident and so strong, it would look like hate and to have any other love in second place. This does not mean you hate your family. Your family is a gift, but they don't hold first place in your heart if you're a true disciple. That place is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. In true discipleship, Jesus is first place in our heart over all things, and our family is in second place. There's a second group of false disciples that Mark gives here, and it's the scribes from Jerusalem. The scribes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the religious hotspot. Those who were close to God lived in Jerusalem. They were this, it was the home of the religious superstars. And it says here that these superstars, these scribes, have come down to this location from Jerusalem because they heard what was going on. Sometimes we look to quote-unquote religious superstars to define what we think a disciple is. We have to be careful because they might look like a true disciple and they might talk or act like a true disciple, but we have to be careful because true disciple is of the heart. True discipleship is of the heart. This group came and they looked really religious. They looked like they had it all together, but they were false disciples because they were opposing what Jesus was doing. And then they did something else. They did something horrible, sinful, They made a false accusation. Let's look at verses 22 to 30. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he is driving out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly I I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus mentions this thing called the unforgivable sin. And this is one of those magnet passages for people. Because everyone reads this and wants to know what it is and did they do it? I've had many people over my course of time as a pastor ask me, what is the unforgivable sin? And many of them are concerned they committed it. And let me get this out of the way right now. The unforgivable sin is the denying the power of the Holy Spirit and attributing God's work to Satan. It's denying the power of the Holy Spirit and attributing God's work to Satan. Many are worried that they committed this, but what I tell people is if you are concerned that you committed the unforgivable sin, then there's no way you did it. There's no way you committed it. It takes a lot. It's a total turning away from the things of God. 
in total rebellion, in anti all that is God. But here's the thing. To be good Bible readers, we have to realize that the point of this passage is not the unforgivable sin. That's just a sideline that Jesus gives us, and we can't get caught up with that. What's going on with this passage is that these religious big shots are making false accusations because they are false disciples. That's what Jesus is getting at here. They were saying that Jesus was casting out demons not by the power of the Holy Spirit, but by the control of Satan. Not only does that not make any sense whatsoever, which Jesus pointed out, but it's a total perversion of the truth. And it's a rejection of God's saving grace and love and power. This is saying, Jesus, you are not God. That is why there can't be forgiveness for this sin, because it denies the one who can forgive sin, the only one who can forgive sin. The scribes denied the work of God. They denied the personhood and divinity of Jesus. They denied Jesus' authority. Jesus' family and the scribes here both disregarded and disrespected the authority and the will of God. Now look at something else that's interesting. Look at where his family is at this point. Look at verse 31. It says, His mother and his brothers came and standing where? Outside. They sent word to him and called him. Look up at verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem. The scribes and the family were physically outside, but not just physically. It's a picture that they were outside God's will at this point. Someone who is inside God's will is a disciple who is with Jesus and obeys Jesus. And we see another picture of that that Mark gives us here. Look at verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied, Who are my mothers and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was creating a new community of insiders. Disciples who were with him and disciples who were around him. Verse 14, that they would be with him. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him. Verse 34, those sitting in a circle around him, with him and around him. A true disciple means you are with him. And sent out from him. And when you are sent out from him, you are sent out with this message of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to earth. He went to a cross to take on our sin. Because our sin separated us from a holy God. And on the cross he absorbed the wrath and the punishment from God the Father that was supposed to go to us. And in pain for that on the cross he rose from the dead. And now gives us a chance to be in relationship with God because of what he did on the cross. Now I want to tie these three pictures together with the gospel lens because here's what we tend to do. We look at a passage like this and we see picture number one, the current world, and we say, oh, that's evil, that's bad. 
And we see picture number three, the false disciples, and we say, oh, that's evil, that's bad. And we see picture number two, to be a disciple is to be with him and to be sent out from him. We say, that's good, that's who I am all the time. And then we try to massage and make our will conform to that picture number two. And there's a piece of that that's right. But a better gospel picture of this passage is this. That the knee-jerk reaction of my heart is to be in picture one, where I just want Jesus to fill all my needs and be my need filler. And the knee-jerk reaction in my sinful heart is also picture number three, to be a false disciple where I say, here's how you're supposed to do it and here's how I want it to be. But God loves us so much that he takes the defaults of our hearts, our actions to want to go to the sides, and he loves us in such a way that his amazing love, his amazing grace, if I open my heart to him, pulls me into that true picture of what a disciple is. I love the fact that the very first distinction of a true disciple is to be with him. Because it tells us that no matter how far our hearts will wander to the outside pictures, we can always come and be with him. That's where it starts. And in that place, we find grace. In that place, we find mercy. In that place, we find forgiveness. And then we find that that love that's so amazing and so divine demands my life and my all. And because I'm transformed and blown away by the love and the mercy and grace of such a Savior as Jesus Christ, why would my heart want to go to the outsides any longer? But I'm bound to him to carry out his mission. But it's something that he does within me, not something that I do of my own strength. Because in myself, I am bound to be tied to the outside pictures. But because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, he pulls me in to true discipleship. Be with Jesus. The way I enter the, tr- the true disciple picture is only by the heart and the actions of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only way we get there, is through what he did, not what we do. What a better thought to take with us into communion this morning. I want you to take time in a moment to prepare your heart for communion before we get there. And all I want you to do is this. In the silence I'm about to give you, just be with Jesus. Just be before him. Just picture him in your mind. Just come before him. And maybe in that place, you're going to want to ask for forgiveness of sin. Maybe you want to just reflect on who he is. Maybe you want to just ask for his help so you can concentrate on what's happening and behold this. But just be with Jesus and follow him. Let's take some time to let that sink in.
Now I invite you to take your cup and to open the elements. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body that has been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup. He took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the amazing gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have true life, in him we have true grace, in him we have true mercy. I thank you you did not set this thing up in such a way that it meant that though our hearts are attracted to the false pictures of discipleship, that we in our own strength are held accountable to pulling into rightly what we should be. But instead, God, you sent Jesus Christ to do the work for us and made it our chief ambition to just lean into him and be with him and trust him in his grace of how he's molding our hearts. Thank you for how you did this thing called the gospel. And we celebrate it and we embrace it. And as your people, we carry it now as we pledge our hearts to be with you and as we pledge our hearts to be sent out carrying this amazing message to the world you've placed us. Help us to do so in such a way where we are saturated with your love, your grace, and your mercy, and your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.